I, I know this is um, December the 29th, and, um, uh, but it's the last Sunday we've got before the new year, and I'm going to treat it like it's the new year. Uh, I was, uh, I've been praying, um, um, well, I don't know how to say it, diligently, I guess is the best word to, to use, about what the Lord would have us to, uh, to start this new year off with. And, um, uh, and he, and he spoke to me loud and clear. It was, it was kind of a last minute thing. It wasn't, uh, I was, started looking for this about, uh, I don't know, three weeks ago, maybe. And, uh, and I only got an answer this last week during this last week. And, uh, and the answer was so simple that I disregarded it to begin with. And I thought, oh, wait a minute, that, that can't be right. And, uh, then the more I thought about it and the more it witnessed with my heart, I thought, well, of course that makes the most sense. I'm going to teach a series, begin a series this morning on the subject of faith. Now, uh, I'm going to approach it from a different angle. Uh, I'm going to steal the title from Brother Hagen, The ABCs of Faith. And uh, the reason for that, the reason that he chose that title and the reason that I'm choosing and stealing it from him is uh, because I want to teach faith like you've never heard it before. Not that you haven't heard it before, but I want to teach it as if my understanding or my assumption is the congregation knows nothing about it. Brother Hagen used the title of the ABCs of faith because the ABCs are the building blocks for everything else you're ever going to learn or know, need to know about school and education and so forth. And it's one of the first things you ever learn when you start preschool or even, even what your parents teach you at home. So I'm going to teach on the ABCs of faith. Now, I want to really encourage you, uh, especially encourage you that during this uh, this series, I, I have planned six sermons, whether I quit at six or not, <laughs> who knows. But uh, you know how that goes. But um, uh, but I know of six specific sermons that uh, that the Lord wants me to minister. Not that I've ever preached them before. I don't use notes, so it's not like I pulled my notes out on this. It, it's just stuff that I know the Lord wants me to do and the direction that he's given me. So I want to encourage you to bring your Bibles and follow along in these scriptures, scriptures you've heard before, scriptures you've heard from me, scriptures you've read, whatever the case may be, but read them and hear them like you've never heard them before. Now, for those of you that already know everything about faith, I know by the Spirit of God that I'm going to say things that you don't know. I'm going to tell you things and show you things from the scripture that you have heard before but you have never seen. But don't worry, there won't be a test. You won't have to act like you really learned anything. But I can promise you, if you'll, if you'll give attention to this, I know from what the Lord witnessed to my heart that it's something that he wants to in, in, uh, ingrain in us, to establish in us, like never before. Now, no matter how many faith victories you've had, we can always grow in faith. No matter how many miraculous things God has done for you by faith, you can always grow and learn and increase. And I have a witness in my heart, and I don't think it's just for this year, but the more we go toward the end times, the end of times for the church, or the end of the church age, maybe that's a better way to say it. The end of the church age is the rapture, by the way. So the closer and closer we get to Jesus' return, the end of the church age, the more important it is going to be for the the people of God to live by faith. So you can't hear it enough. Truly, you cannot hear it enough. So I want to encourage you to stick with me. Open your ears. Don't don't turn me off and, and, you know, start off bored because you think you know about faith already. I promise you there are going to be things that you that the Lord will either show you for the first time or he will establish in you like you've never seen before. Now, the ABCs of faith are very simple. There are three things. What faith is, number one, 
Number two, how to get faith. And number three, how to use your faith. Those are the ABCs of faith. What faith is, how faith comes or how to get faith. And third, how to use your faith. Or Brother Hagin used to use this uh, this uh, phrase, how to turn your faith loose. Now, if you look at uh, other things, you can understand the principle. For example, money. If you know what money is and you know how to get money and you know how to use money, you can be successful in life. But a lot of people aren't successful financially because they don't know how to get money. Some people have, know how to get money, but they don't know how to use money well. And so then they become uh, unsuccessful in their lives as well. But when it comes to the subject of faith, if you know what faith is, how faith comes or how to get faith, and then third, how to use your faith, you can conquer the enemy in any ad- adverse situation or circumstance that it rises up against you. So we're going to start this morning. My intent is, and, and we'll see how this goes, but my intent is to speak two weeks on what faith is, two weeks on how faith comes, and two weeks on how to use your faith. And we'll see where we get by the end of those six weeks. Now, if we're going to start off with what faith is, where would we start in the Scripture? Huh? Hebrews 11.1. 1. Not so fast. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 1. That's what I want to caution you about. Now, I wasn't trying to trick you in any way, although I realize it was kind of a trick question. But we have ingrained in our minds certain things about faith, and, and, and scientific science has proved that when you think along a certain way, your brain grooves in that manner. In other words, we create patterns of how we think. We need to keep an open mind to think new ways. Now, the subject of faith, there are two primary words that are used in the, in the King James New Testament regarding faith. One is translated primarily faith. The other is translated primarily believe. Now, I don't want to get into the, the argument about nouns versus verbs and stuff like that. This is not an English class, so I couldn't care less about that. Because both believe and faith are intended to be action words. It's intended to be active God doesn't do anything inactively. He doesn't create anything. He doesn't establish a pattern or a a characteristic of our Christian lives to be inactive. So both faith, which is generally used as a noun, and believe, which is generally used as a verb, are both active words. They're present participle words. They're active. They're in use or in operation all the time. However, the Bible talks about faith in a number of different ways. Faith is kind of like the word grace. It can be defined in a number of ways. Grace is sometimes talked about in a general sense, and grace is sometimes talked about in a specific sense. Paul, for example, told us to grow in grace. Well, he means that in a, specific, in a general sense. Grow in, the, grow in the goodness of God shown toward us through Jesus. But then he talks about obtaining grace from the throne room of heaven. Well, that's a specific use of the word grace. He's not talking about just the overall goodness of God there. He's talking about something specific that meets the need for that time. Well, faith is a lot the same way. For example, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, Paul talked about the end of his life. He said, I've fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. What does he mean? Is he talking about faith in a general sense or a specific sense? He's talking about in a general sense. He's talking about in the general sense of having believed in Jesus and lived his life accordingly. But then he talks about faith that brings results in specific sense. Now, I run into this a lot. 
Because I have a lot of people, especially regarding healing school or, or receiving healing, physical healing for their bodies, people will come and, and they'll say, Pastor Mike, pray for me. I've got this situation or that situation. And I'll always ask, okay, well, what are you believing for? And they'll answer, and, and it's very common. This is not very common for people in our church, but people that come from outside of our church. That, and you can tell right away they haven't had much teaching. And, and they'll say things like, well, I believe God. Well, what does that mean? I believe God. I have faith in God. Well, what does that mean? That could mean anything for anybody. That could mean, well, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. You know, James said in James chapter 2 and verse 9, he said, Believest thou that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and they tremble. So in what a lot of people talk about believing God, they're not believing anything more about God or believing any more of the blessings of God than the devil who knows there is a God. Well, that won't get you results. I mean, it's true, there is one God, Jesus is the Son of God, but that won't bring you results if you're looking for healing or to receive something from God. So we're going to look at a variety of scriptures this morning, a few of them anyway. I'm going to take my time and comment on some things. But we're going to look at some scriptures this morning and compile a definition of faith. Because different scriptures tell us different things about the subject of faith, tell us different, show us different characteristics of faith. Have you found Romans chapter 1 yet? Okay, look at verse 16. We'll start with this. Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 17 is the one I want you to see. For therein, therein, in the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, the word of God, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. From faith to faith has to be a growing faith then, doesn't it? from growing in one level of faith to another level of faith. He's saying righteousness is revealed as you grow from one level of faith to the next level of faith. The more you grow in faith, the more you grow in faith. Now, he's talking about faith in a general sense. The more you grow in faith, or we could interpose the knowledge of God through his word, that's when righteousness is revealed. And folks, i got to tell you, that's why there's not a lot of righteousness shown in the modern-day church. Because there's not a whole lot of growing in faith being done church-wide. The Bible is very clear. Paul is very clear. He's saying as you grow in faith, righteousness will increase in your life. Now, it can increase in, in the sense that you get more righteous because you are made righteous when you accept Jesus as the Lord of your life. The blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin and you are made righteous instantly. But that doesn't mean you know what it is. That doesn't mean you know what all it involves and how it manifests in your life. But as you grow in the knowledge of God, which is faith to faith, as you grow in the knowledge of God, that righteousness will get bigger and bigger in you. Not from God's side, but from your side. It's as big as it can be when God imparts righteousness to your spirit, righteousness to your spirit. But you can certainly increase in it by letting it manifest more and more in you. And Paul says that happens through growing in faith. For therein, in the word of God, through the word of God, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written. Notice this phrase, the just shall live by faith. Please notice it does not say the just or the righteous shall use their faith. Do you see that? The first definition I want to give you of faith is that it's a lifestyle for the righteous. 
Faith is a lifestyle for the righteous. It's not a spare tire that you use when your regular tire goes flat. When you have a problem in life, you have to come to come up with some kind of fix for it. Faith is not a fix for something that's wrong. Faith is a lifestyle. And unfortunately, so many people have faith experiences, but they never learn to live the life of faith. They'll use God's word to fix a problem in their life, and God will honor his word. God always honors his word. But then the word stops being the, the pattern or the foundation for the what that person lives in their life, and so it never becomes more than just a temporary fix. But God said, this is God that uh, uh, that Paul is quoting, and he said it even in the Old Testament, the just shall live by faith. So this thing called faith, as we define it, as we show you what it is from the Scripture, this thing called faith is supposed to be something you live by. Now, please understand what that means. That means when you make Jesus the Lord of your life, you declare, you commit yourself to changing your lifestyle. You hear a lot about in our present day about lifestyle choices. That's not usually a conversation we all like to get into. Because, boy, you say the wrong thing and A&E will cut you off TV. (laughs) Or whatever. But that's the way we talk about lifestyle choices in our world today, isn't it? We talk about how people choose to live. When you made Jesus the Lord of your life, you made a lifestyle choice. Now, you may not have known that was the lifestyle choice you were making. You may not have heard anything other than Jesus came to forgive sin. Well, you made a lifestyle choice. You made a lifestyle choice to turn your back on sin and turn your turn your uh, your attention to the things of God. You probably didn't know that the things that you were turning your attention to or were intended to be this lifestyle of faith. But that's exactly what it is. Faith is first and foremost a lifestyle. That means you need to know, I need to know, we all need to know everything we can about this thing called faith so that we can live the righteous life. Because without faith, you can't do it. Without faith, you can't do it. It's impossible to do. Now, let me show you something else about the subject of faith. Turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. I believe Paul was the writer of the book of Hebrews, but whoever, whoever authored this, uh, this letter, the Holy Ghost inspired it. So here's God speaking to you. Here's the Holy Ghost telling you something about walking, pleasing, uh, walking in a pleasing manner toward God. Hebrews 11.6, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe. Notice faith and believe are used together. He that cometh to God must believe that he is. In other words, that means you got to believe God is who he says he is in his word. And that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Have you ever noticed you don't hear a lot of testimonies of people getting saved by saying, God, if you're real, save me. Because there's no faith in that. I've heard people give testimonies of praying prayers like, God, if you're real, save me. And then they find out through someone, somebody coming across their path or some situation that occurs, they find out that God is real. And then they believe on him to get saved. But you've already got to believe that God is before you can come to it. 
You've got to believe that God is who the Word says He is before you can come to Him for anything. And that's why so many Christians fail to receive healing or any of the other numerous things that Jesus paid for on the cross because they don't believe that He is what the Bible says that He is on the subject of healing. They've been talked out of it, in many cases, by preachers. But notice the first phrase again. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Notice it does not say, without faith, it's hard to please God. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, I trust that you know the scripture over in 1 Corinthians, where Paul said, by the Holy Ghost, there abides three things, faith, hope, and love. It's translated charity, but we understand that's the word love. There abides three things. In other words, there are three things that are eternal that Paul identifies, faith, hope, and love. Can you find anywhere where it says it's impossible to please God without hope? Can you find any place in the Bible where it says it's impossible to please God without love? We see in the scripture in Galatians chapter 6 where your faith won't work without love. So love is certainly important. But this is the only place where the Bible says this is the necessary, the, 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 the necessary ingredient to please God. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're going to live the lifestyle of faith, you're going to be full of hope. If you're going to live the lifestyle of faith, you're going to be full of love. But the Bible identifies specifically that faith is the thing that's impossible to please God without. Now turn with me over to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. We'll start in verse 5. James is writing by the Holy Ghost, and he said, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not. That mean upbraids mean he don't, won't rebuke you for your request. And it shall be given him. So it tells us that God wants to give us wisdom, doesn't it? But, verse 6, here's the qualification, here's the condition. But let him ask in faith. Nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. Now notice verse eight, uh, verse 7. For let not that man, the man that he's talking about is the man that wavers, the man that goes back and forth. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Well, then if we take these verses of Scripture, we can very simply identify that faith is the necessary ingredient to receive anything of the Lord. Faith is the means whereby we receive anything, or we could even turn it around and say faith is the means whereby we receive everything. Because any means every, doesn't it? Any means nothing left out. Well, if there's nothing left out, that means it's everything. Faith is the means whereby we receive everything or anything from God. Now, let me use some deductive reasoning here. You remember back in school, they taught us if A equals B, uh, or no, if A equals C and B equals C, then A equals, then I got it all mixed up. If A equals C, uh, if A equals B and, and A equals C, then B equals C. I think I did that right. The Bible says faith is uh, the requirement to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So faith is necessary to please God, right? A equals B. Then the Bible says that faith is the means whereby you receive anything or everything from God. A equals C. That means that pleasing God is to receive from Him. B equals C. You know what pleases God? What pleases God is when you receive from Him 
And you can't do that without faith. Now, John's gospel tells us, Jesus told us that already in John chapter 15. But we see it proven from the subject of faith. We see it proven by scriptures that tell us about faith. John chapter 15, verse 7 says this. It said, if you abide in me, Jesus is talking to his disciples. That means you and me. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Now, verse 8 is the key. Herein is my father glorified that you may bear much fruit. How is God glorified that you get your prayers answered? But we just see from James chapter 1 that the key to getting your prayer answered is to ask in faith. Nothing wavering. Nothing wavering. Now, folks, we've already seen a couple of times where faith and believe are used together. Faith is the state or the condition that results from believing. That's why they're used in two different forms throughout the New Testament. Faith is the state or the condition that results from believing. Now, let me give you a natural example. A couple of examples that will help you with this, I think. One is this. I am in a marriage. The reason I am in a marriage is because there was a day where I got married. Right? Now, they're very closely associated. There was a wedding ceremony, a marriage ceremony, and we got married some 30, long time ago. 1981, whatever the math is on that. So some 30-something years ago, we got married. Beth and I got married. That was a beginning point. That was a point where we took action. There was a marriage license. There was a wedding ceremony. There was a preacher. Brother Hagen married us. And and the whole thing involved with the ceremony. Now, you can't say that the marriage, the wedding ceremony, was the marriage. And you can't say that the marriage was just the wedding ceremony. As a matter of fact, I see a lot of young people that put all their focus and all their attention on the wedding ceremony. They get the marriage license, they get the church, they get the flowers, they get all the dresses and the, the, the whatever that's involved in the reception. They put more attention and focus and concentration and preparation into the ceremony than they do the marriage when the ceremony is only going to last for 20 or 30 minutes and the marriage is supposed to last forever. They finish the wedding ceremony. It's kind of like, well, this is all we planned for. What's next? But you can certainly admit that they are very closely associated with one another, Right? But that means that there was a beginning point that created the condition of marriage. Faith is the condition of marriage that starts with believing. Same thing's true where salvation is concerned. Jesus said, John chapter 6, or John chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus said, God so loved the world that whosoever Believeth in him, believeth in him, believeth. That means a starting point. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. So eternal life, or what we know of as salvation, is the condition that begins with believing in Jesus. We understand that to mean believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord. So salvation results from believing in Jesus. Now, salvation is a continuous believing in Jesus, but it first started with believing that he went to the cross and died for your sins. Right? Now, go back to James chapter 1 with me for a minute. Let's look at another characteristic of faith. Another part of the definition of faith. Let's start with verse 5 again. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. Now, I want you to notice, we've already seen, he finishes up in verse 7, 
Let not that man, the double-minded man, the wavering man, think that he shall receive anything from the Lord. So he goes in verse 5 from talking specifically about asking for wisdom to the principle in verse 7 about receiving anything or everything from God. Can you see that? And he calls that principle faith. Faith is the condition that exists because you first believe or you have believed to God. So he says, let him ask in faith, verse 6, nothing wavering. So what does that tell us? That tells us that faith does not waver. The condition that comes from believing God doesn't waver. It's forever settled. Faith is the condition where whatever you believe for, as uh, whatever the issue that is, whatever area that is, is once and for all settled and done. That's the lifestyle that the righteous are to live. Where the issue is settled because we have believed. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 2, I think it is, says this. It says, we which have believed have entered into rest. Have believed, that means there was a point where we believed. Now we're past that point. We have believed. Started off believing. Now we have believed. We're further on down the road. And as a result, we've entered into that rest. That rest is faith. It's the condition of faith. One translation says it this way. We which have believed have ceased from our struggles. Well, deductive reasoning tells us that ceasing from your struggles means you're no longer wavering. Because if it's the Holy Ghost that's inspiring the writer to write Hebrews and the Holy Spirit is inspiring James to write the book that bears his name, then he's got to be talking about the same thing when he's talking about faith. So where it says, but let him ask in faith nothing wavering, that means ceasing from your struggles. Now, folks, here's a very important issue, very important point that you need to always know. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but about the fight of faith, the good fight of faith, and that is this. The devil is always trying to get you to waver. That's all he can do, because once you have believed, his only weapon against you is to get you to waver, because the wavering man shouldn't expect to receive anything from God. So the only way the devil can keep you from receiving from God is to get you to waver. Can you see that? But the lifestyle of faith that the righteous are to live is an unwavering lifestyle. Notice in verse 8, we quit with verse 7, but notice verse 8. It says a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. That defines wavering. Double-mindedness is wavering. Thinking one thing at one time, another thing at another time. Thinking God will supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory. And then the next day when things don't look good, they say, I don't know what I'm going to do. That's double-mindedness. That's wavering. Now, let me put it back into a common example where we'll all be able to understand. We use the marriage example. I'm in a marriage because I got married. The point in time where I got married created the state or the condition of marriage. Now, let's say that two people get married. They have this big wedding. They have all the, the fancy things that they wanted to have, and it was a dream wedding for them both. They go on the honeymoon, and they come back from the honeymoon, and then the husband starts staying out all night, doesn't come home. He goes back to partying with his friends and doing whatever he's doing, running around with other women. Clearly, there's a misunderstanding about marriage in his thinking. What does that mean? That means he's wavering as far as the marriage is concerned. Now, you can't say he didn't get married. There's a wedding certificate that proves it. 
I'm sure they've got a lot of wedding pictures that show it too as evidence of the fact that they got married. But he's not living in that marriage in the proper manner because now he's operating outside. He's wavering. He's going outside the bounds of the marriage sometimes, comes back in the bounds of the marriage at other times. Yet he's married. What's going to be the end result of that marriage? Only one of two things is going to happen. They're either going to get divorced or they're going to stay married in what we might generously call less than an optimal situation. It's either going to be the dissolution of the marriage or that marriage relationship is never going to progress to what it really was intended by God to be. Right? That's the same way it works by faith. That which you believed originally for will either be dissolved or never fully realized. That's what wavering does. So according to James, as inspired by the Holy Ghost, one definition of wavering is a stable or unwavering condition regarding the issue that was once believed. That means just what Jesus said, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. That means whatever we believe God for to begin with, that's it. Now let's use the other example we talked about where salvation is concerned. Somebody gets saved. They come to the altar, give their heart to Jesus. They get saved. But they don't renew their mind to what the Word says. So the next day they wake up and the devil's right there as he is with all of us saying, you don't think that really worked, do you? We could use speaking with tongues, baptism of the Holy Ghost. They get baptized in the Spirit, begin to speak with other tongues, and immediately the devil, as soon as they walk away, the devil says, you don't think that was really tongues, do you? That was just you. devil ever tell you that when you got filled with the Holy Ghost? Well, sure, he tells us all that. He tries to talk us out of what we've already experienced. What is he doing? He's trying to make us waver from the experience that we've already encountered. The person that goes through life wondering whether or not they're saved. Well, I went to the altar and I asked Jesus to forgive me, just like the Bible says, but I'm just not sure I'm saved. They're never going to enjoy the blessings of salvation because they're wavering back and forth. They're double-minded. Am I saved? Am I not saved? Same thing with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Am I filled with the Spirit? Am I not filled with the Spirit? What's the only thing that brings clarity to either one of those situations? The truth of the word. For somebody to understand, here's what salvation means. Here's how you get it in order for you not to have it when you operated according to what the Bible says, God would have to be a liar. And he's not a liar. But here's how the devil attacks you. And here's how you defend against him. It's the knowledge of the word that the righteousness of God is revealed through. As we grow from faith to faith, just as we read in Romans chapter one, verse 17. Are you with me? So faith is a settled condition. Now, some of you are probably thinking right now, well, I'm believing God for something, but am I wavering? What about me? There are thoughts that come. Please understand, folks, there are a difference between the thoughts that you think and the thoughts that the devil brings to your mind. The devil tempting you to think that it's not working is not your thought. Your thought is what you choose to accept as fact. Everything else is just the devil's attempt to make you waver. In other words, to take you from a position of stability. Remember the old game that we used to play as kids? We called it Indian wrestling. We'd grab each other, everybody stand steady and try to get a firm footing on the ground. And then you take each other by the arm and try to make each other fall. You ever play that as kids? Well, okay, we did. 
That's exactly what the devil does. He tries to take the firm foundation of the word of God upon which you first believed. He tries to make you fall. But this is a spiritual contest, not a physical one. It's not determined by who's the strongest person. The question or the issue is determined in this manner by what you choose to accept to be true. And if you choose to accept to be true the word that you based your original faith upon, what you originally believed, then nothing the devil can do can make you waver. In other words, waver is a choice. Wavering is a choice. Whether or not you waver is a choice. It's not a result of anything that the devil does. It's a choice that you make. No thoughts of doubt can make you waver unless you accept them to be true. But let him ask in faith, verse 6 again, let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. What does that mean? That means an unstable man or a double-minded man is a man that doesn't know what's true. He's going through life confused. Well, the word says this, and think about how much of the church world operates and lives this way. Well, the word says Jesus heals, and the word says God can do anything. All things are possible with God. But we just don't ever know what God's going to do. Well, Jesus did. Jesus, who came to the earth and lived as a man, didn't have to question what God was going to do. He never had anybody come to him for healing where Jesus had to say, wait a minute, let me check with God on this. And then he took a knee in front of everybody and said, Father, if it be your will, heal this man. Didn't happen. You can't find one person that Jesus ever turned away from healing. Never. Now, that doesn't mean everybody in Jesus' ministry was healed. Because in John chapter 5, it says that Jesus was at the pool of Bethesda, and there were five porches full of people that were sick and lame and, and, and crippled and all different kinds of conditions. And only one guy got healed. So Jesus being the healer doesn't mean everybody automatically gets healed. And the one guy that Jesus did minister to, the first thing he looked for was faith. Why? Because without faith, it's impossible to receive anything from the Lord. So he asked the man, will you be made whole? Will you? He's talking to him about his will in his search for faith. Will you be made whole? Why? Because the lifestyle of faith is a choice. It's not an automatic. It's not a given. It's a choice. So Jesus looked for faith. He said, wilt thou be made whole? And the guy said, well, here's why I can't get healed. I don't have a guy to put me in the water. Somebody's always quicker than me when the angel comes down and disturbs the water. And first, only the first guy again gets healed, so I'm always late. And then Jesus ministered to him, not according to his own faith, but by a move of the Spirit of God to show that God sent Jesus to the earth to minister healing. But then Jesus walked away from the rest of that crowd. He didn't heal anybody else in the group. See, some people will say, well, you faith preachers, you faith and healing preachers, if healing works the way that it did in Jesus' ministry, why don't you just go into the hospital and clean it out? Well, Mr. Smarty Pants, why didn't Jesus go to the pool of Bethesda and clean that out? See, people have wrong ideas about how things work. And God doesn't work according to your idea of how things work. He works according to what the Word says. So the important thing where healing is concerned is that Jesus never turned away one person. 
Now, of all the people in the modern-day church that claim that they're sick because God has put this on them to teach them something, why didn't Jesus run into any of those people? It said that he healed multitudes, not multitudes singular, multitudes on numerous occasions. It talked about the whole multitude was healed. It talked about the multitudes of sick people that came to him. Why could Jesus not find one person that God ever made sick? Was that just a new thing that happened after Jesus was raised from the dead? Well, if that's true, we've got some pages to tear out of the Bible because the Bible says God never changes. That means he's the same now as he was when Jesus was here on the earth. Furthermore, James, in verse 17 of chapter 1, tells us that there is no shadow or variableness in God. He's always the same, meaning if he was always on the side of healing in Jesus' ministry, he's always on the side of healing today. That means if he was ever on the side of healing in Jesus' ministry, he has to be on the side of healing today. Because there's no variableness, there's no changing, no shadow of turning with God. There's not even a hint that things could be different today than they were in Jesus' day. Well, then why don't we have it the way that it was then? For the biggest part in the modern day church, most people don't know how to believe God. Because even in situations where there was a resistance to healing, Jesus always commended the person's faith. You remember the Syrophoenician woman? Syrophoenician woman came to Jesus. What is it, Matthew 16, something like that? She came to Jesus and said, Master, my daughter is is grievously vexed with the devil. And Jesus didn't even answer her. She wasn't a Jew, not a purebred Jew, and so he didn't even answer her. But she wouldn't leave him alone. She kept coming. See, folks, difficulties won't injure true faith because true faith is forever settled. It's the condition of having believed. She knew what she believed about Jesus. She knew what he could do. She knew what God was, had sent him to the earth to do. And she wasn't going to have anything left, left less than what he was sent to do, even though she was not of the original bloodline of the Jews. She wouldn't give up. She came before him and worshipped him and said, Lord, help me. And then Jesus talked to her, but he didn't say anything kind. He said, it's not right to take the children's bread. Healing is the children's bread. It's part of the covenant of Abraham, in other words. It's not right to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. Now, folks, in this politically correct climate, can you imagine what would happen if a modern-day preacher called somebody a dog? That's what Jesus said. It's not right to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. And she said, truth, Lord. She didn't get offended. She didn't say, well, I'll have the ACLU talk to you. (laughs) She didn't talk about discrimination. She didn't do anything except keep her eyes focused on what she came for, which was healing for her daughter. She made her case based on what Jesus said. She said, truth, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. You remember what Jesus answered? He said, oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it unto you even as you will. So even in the situation, the one situation where we see where healing was hindered because she was outside of the bloodline of the Jews, even in that situation, her faith brought her answer to her. That's why. Because faith is necessary to receive from God. Because faith is necessary to please God. That's why God wants you to live a lifestyle of faith because He wants you to have everything Jesus purchased for you. 
He wants you to have every bit of it. Leave nothing out. Won't it, would it, wouldn't it be a shame to, to get to heaven? I hope this is not the case for you, but I'm sure it's going to be the case for a lot of people. Won't it be a shame for people to get to heaven and find out there was so much more they could have had here that Jesus purchased for us on the cross through his blood, same blood that he shed for sin, that would have freed them from the bondage of the devil here on the earth, and they didn't take advantage of it. But they can't say we didn't know because the book says everything that belongs to us. It's right there in the Bible. I don't think the excuse of, well, my pastor didn't preach that part. I don't think that's going to work. But even there, it's the responsibility of the individual to find out what the Word says. For therein, in the Word of God, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. You're supposed to be growing in faith more this year than you were last year. You're supposed to know more of what belongs to you or be more settled and established in how to receive what belongs to you this year than you were last year. And folks, that's the whole reason why the Lord has impressed upon me to teach this this way. Back to James chapter 1. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith. Please notice that faith asks. For what it desires. But let him ask in faith. Nothing wavering. Now he goes from talking about asking in faith. To a person. And what people are like. He talks about the condition. Of asking in faith. To talking about what people are like. But let him ask in faith. So here are your choices. You can be someone that asks in faith or you can be somebody that wavers. Those are your only options, folks, when it comes to the subject of faith. And I would say, I would submit to you, you decide for yourself, but I would submit to you that the, the, the portion of people that are in the waving category is a lot bigger spot than the ones asking in faith. But let him ask in faith. Nothing wavering for he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. How much of the church world does that describe in your opinion? Driven with the wind and tossed. In other words, they don't know what to think. They don't know what to think. You got the church arguing about homosexuality now. You got the new pope talking about, well, we as a church can't take a position that homosexuality is a sin because religion evolves. Really? Interesting. I hope I'm sitting on the sidelines when they explain that to God when we get to heaven. Well, we thought religion evolved. Folks, the word never changes. He even went on to make the statement that there is no such thing as absolute truth. I'm sure that's news to God. Because everything that God says, everything that the word declares is absolute truth. Whether you believe it or not, it is absolute truth. You therefore have the privilege of believing the truth. And this is where society's going. It's going to go to the point where you're not even going to be able to allow, be allowed to say publicly in any kind of platform that sin is sin. Because you may be stepping on the toes of what somebody likes to do. And after all, we can't judge. Well, That's kind of a misnomer on the Bible, too. The Bible says we're not to judge people. It does not say we're not to judge things, including sin. 
In fact, the Bible says he that is spiritual judges all things. Not people, but things. So you better buckle up. You better decide right now whether or not you're going to be somebody that lives by faith or you're going to be somebody that wavers. Are you going to waver when it comes to the truth of God's word? Are you going to waver when it comes to sin? Are you going to waver when it comes to what belongs to you through the the purchase of Jesus by his blood, the shedding of his blood? What are you going to do? This is the world we're headed for. This is the world that we've already entered into. What are you going to do? I like what the scripture says, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask in faith, nothing wavering for. Oh, I'm sorry, but he that give, uh, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. And it shall be given unto him, but let him ask in faith, nothing wavering for he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. Which way do waves go? Wherever the wind blows. He's talking about winds of doctrine. He's talking about winds of thought. You're going to be a person that wavers and is blown with whatever the culture says that we should do or whatever doctrinal position some preachers take. Or you can be somebody that's established and fixed on the word unwavering because you know the truth of God's word. That's what it's talking about. For he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man, the man that wavers, think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Notice the position that God has taken. Here's how you receive. It's through this condition called faith that comes about by believing God. Faith is the condition. Believing is the action. And by that condition where things are settled, whatever it is you're believing God for or believing God concerning, that's settled once and for all. We're not going to go back and forth on that anymore. It's settled. It's set. It's done. It's established. Or you can be somebody that says, well, I don't know. I sure hope so. I sure hope so. Remember, it's not hope that pleases God. It's faith. It's not love that the Bible says is impossible to please God without. It's faith. Notice verse 8 again. A double-minded man is unstable in all, all, everybody say all, all of his ways. Notice he did not say that a double-minded man is only unstable in the way that he's double-minded. What James is telling us by the Holy Ghost is being double-minded in one thing will bleed over into something else. Can you see the importance of being established in the Word? Can you see the importance of knowing what God's word says belongs to you? Can you see where the modern day church has missed it? By preaching Reader's Digest sermons and cultural issues? Instead of preaching what the word of God says? Folks, what I think about cultural issues won't help you with God. It may or may not be right. Well, it's right. But that's not the point. The point is, what does the Bible say belongs to you? Because that's where the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, from the progression, from the growth in faith. It's in the word of God that the righteousness 
of God is revealed. And that's the, who the just, the righteousness, the, the righteous people of God, that's the lifestyle. This thing called faith is the lifestyle where they're, whereby they are required to live. Well, you can't live it unless you know what the word says. Cause that's where it's revealed. Can you see that? Let me close with one last scripture. Mark chapter 11. There's a lot of time we could spend over here and we won't. At least not this morning. But please notice what Jesus said. We'll set up the story in verse 12. And on the morrow when they were come from Bethany, this is the last week of Jesus' life here on the earth. When he's gone to Jerusalem, gone to, to be crucified. Earlier in the week, he's doing things and preaching in the temple and so forth. And on the morrow when they were hungry, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not. Now, that's a little blind to us in the King James. If you know anything, and you can study this, look it up on the Internet any way you want to. Fig trees in, in Israel, in the area of, of Israel, the Middle East, and so forth, it doesn't, it doesn't work like trees that we're used to. We're used to leaves coming out on trees, and then they bud, and then the fruit comes, the flower, and then the fruit, and stuff like that. That's not the way fig trees work in Israel. When the leaves come out, the figs come out at the same time. So literally what this says, and these are East, or Western men, mentalities, Western-minded people that are interpreting the original scriptures. Western-minded people are thinking like we are. First there's leaves and then fruit grows later. That's not the way it works. What this originally says, what it says from the original Greek is that there were no figs on it even though there were leaves. In other words, when Jesus saw the green tree, he immediately assumed this tree has figs on it because figs trees produce Figs and leaves at the same time. Did I get that right? You understand what I'm trying to say? So when Jesus came to it, he saw that there were only leaves and no figs. <coughs> and so what did Jesus do? What does Jesus show us to do with unproductive or unfruitful circumstances in our lives? And Jesus answered and said unto it. Notice he did not talk to God about the tree. He did not say, oh, Father, I'm going to be crucified in about five days. The least I could do is have breakfast. That's what Christians would do now. It's just not fair. God, why does this always happen to me? Jesus answered and said unto it, the tree. Now, here's the difference between Jesus and and most Christians. Jesus talked to things. Most Christians are trying to talk to God about things. But Jesus talked to the things. Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. In other words, that's it. You had your one choice, your one chance to produce fruit. You're out of here. Jesus did not say... Try to do better next year. Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter, uh, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. Skip over with me to verse 20. And in the morning, the next morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. Now that's not normally the way a fig tree or any other tree would dry. 
but would, would die, would dry up. Not from the roots. This thing looks like lightning struck it. It's dead overnight. If you took a chainsaw to it the day before, there'd still be green leaves on it. But there's a power that's greater than any natural force that we're associated with that worked on this tree. And Peter, calling to remember it, said unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. And Jesus answering said unto them, Have faith in God. And let me close with this. I'm not going to talk to you about how faith works. We'll get to that later on. But notice that Jesus identified the condition that caused the unfruitful circumstance that faced him to depart, to be removed from existence. As faith. So could we define faith as the removal, the means whereby the removal of unfruitful circumstances in your life takes place? That's the pattern that Jesus showed us. Maybe we should alter the wording in that a little bit and say it this way. Faith is that condition which changes things. Because we'll see, if we look at the life of Jesus, we can see that he changed things by faith to the positive as well as to the negative. So faith is the means whereby things, natural things, are changed. So what have we seen? We've seen that faith is a lifestyle. We've seen that faith is necessary, a requirement to please God. We've seen faith is the means whereby you receive from God. And we've seen that faith is that which changes things in this natural realm. Now, folks, if we didn't teach anything more about faith, would that not make faith a worthy goal for the rest of your life? In addition, we've seen that faith, the condition of faith, the condition that comes about by believing or having believed God, is a settled Restful, cease from struggle condition. It's done. When people come and they say, well, Pastor Mike, I'm not sure if I'm in faith or not. You know what that tells me? It tells me they're not because they're not settled. Faith says that's it. This issue is over. We can move on to the next thing. Faith doesn't have to keep struggling. Oh, I hope it works. Oh, please, God, please, God, please, God. No, faith is settled. Now, when we get to how you know how you can get faith or how faith comes, that'll make more sense. But just on face value, we can accept that faith is the settled condition whereby what you believed is already done. We which have believed have entered into rest. That rest is faith. Now, notice something else Jesus said in verse 22. Mark chapter 11, verse 22. Jesus did not say this is something special or specific or unique to me because I'm the son of God. The understood subject of the sentence is you. You have faith in God. In other words, Jesus is telling them you can do the same thing I just did. Peter is saying, wow, master, look at what happened. Jesus is saying, yeah, you can do this too. Faith in God does this. And it's not unique to me. It's not because I'm the son of God. It's not because I'm the Messiah. Faith 
will make this happen for you too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you for the privilege to walk by faith. Your word says that the just shall live by faith, Lord. Impress upon us, Father, the necessity of the lifestyle of faith that we may live, that we may walk, that we may operate every minute of every day of our lives in the condition that results from having believed you. Oh, Father, what a wonderful thing to know that we can have confidence, to be fully persuaded, which is what faith means. It means persuasion, that we can be persuaded that your word is more true than the things that we see around us. That your word, even as in Jesus' case, was more real and more powerful than the tree that stood in front of him. Thank you, Father, for the privilege that we have to walk by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.